Thanks for taking the time to download this BBC Radio 5 Live podcast. To search for other podcasts you might like, click bbc.co.uk slash 5 Live, where you'll also find our terms of use. You ready, Robbie? Yep. Let's do it. Hello, welcome along to this week's podcast. It is uh, Robbie and Edith in for Simon and Mark once again. It's McWittertainment week two of yeah. two. Uh, which also included, well, we'll let the show explain for itself what we continued uh, from what we started last week. It's just, it's, I mean, it's, it's, cut, it's cutting edge is what it is. It's cutting edge radio. <laughs> you be the judge of that. Here's this week's show. We should record the pep talk that we get just before we, we come on air. It's It's a thing of beauty. It's kind of encouragement. I think it's it's like um, the kind of it's the kind of pep talks that the Egyptian slaves got as they were ho- hoisting these enormous blocks of <laughs> stone up ramps. Uh, good but, they, but look, and they built the pyramids. Exactly, so what does and that millions tell you? of people go and see them every year. Maybe we're a future tourist attraction. Is that what you're trying to say? Uh, good afternoon and welcome along to the show. It is at Roby and Edith in for Simon and Mark again this week. Lovely to be here with you. Uh, we've got loads on the show today. We have indeed. We've got Suicide Squad. Uh, Sid and Nancy, the 30th anniversary re-release of that. Sweet Dean. 30 years, man. The Carer, Bobby Sands, 66 Days, a documentary and Up for Love. And we do, of course, also have a special guest this week. Mr Jared Leto. The Joker himself. He'll be singing on the show this afternoon. He will not be singing. Well, he might well be talking about singing, but we'll wait and find out. That's going to be after 2.30 this afternoon. Please do get in touch. It would be lovely to hear from you. Uh, You can do that on email, mail at bbc.co.uk. Text us 85058 or you can head to the Caramel Demir Facebook page or indeed Twitter. We are at Wittertainment, but known personally as Mick Witter when we are together and on the show. Uh, we're also streaming live on the website, bbc.co.uk forward slash five live. In fact, that's when um, you do the I'm doing wave, the wave, wave jazz hands, hands and I'm doing it specifically for all the Wittertainees on the Wittertainment cruise. They want a big shout out. So there we go. Let's shout. Waving and, yeah, all that kind of thing. Um, So, yeah, now, listen, um, if you were listening last week, you'll know we launched a highly innovative, original, hugely successful new feature on the show, Mystery Sound in Cinema. Uh, We were very excited about it. Uh, We got some great response, including Chris Smith, who said that the frequency of our Mystery Sound of the Week uh, vibrated his phone and his speaker clean off his bedside table. That's a result. See, uh, we're literally, this feature has transcended the bounds of radio. Sound. It's reaching out into people's rooms and destroying their property. Perfect, just what we wanted. To gauge just how much you all loved it, we set up a, a poll on social media asking who'd like to hear that again. Yeah, now look, the results of this poll weren't quite what we expected. Uh, 53% of those who took part, just those who took part though, yeah. uh, so maybe not the silent majority, said they never wanted to hear the feature again. Really? And some suggested it wasn't actually an original idea and it had been done before. No. Many, many, no, many, no, no, many no, no, times. No, 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 no. Now, look, no. I think reading into this slightly, a lot of people were using uh, this as a protest vote. Uh, maybe some people didn't think their vote would count. They just wanted to register their dissatisfaction with the system. Uh, some kind of uh, flailing rage against some, some bigger problem that we're not actually a part of. Yeah, it could be. Now I think a lot of people are also experiencing voters' remorse. And it was only an advisory poll anyway, you know, so let's not kind of spring into action off the back of this yep. and activate uh, Article 50 or whatever it is back off. in the Wittertainment Constitution that we need to do in order to, to jettison this feature. But we want to be very clear that, you know, no thanks means no thanks. So um, the, the process will now, I think, it may take two years, but it will now begin. 
It will. So here's this week's mystery sound in cinema. That's a thing of beauty. Is it's it a, connection. Can I make no, a I guess? Everyone's things are okay at home. Is it a maiden in distress from like a kind of, I don't know, a Robin Hood spin-off film? <laughs> I love it, I love it. Uh, what do you think it is? Uh, it is related to a film we'll be talking about on the show. If you have any ideas of what you think our mystery sound is, let's have it one more time. It's not from a carry-on film. It could be, or is it? I don't know. Uh, email us, mail at bbc.co.uk or you can text us 85058. We will reveal the answer later. There are no prizes. It's for pure fun. It's fun Friday. But it is pure fun. Pure fun. Nothing it's purer. It's kind of fun in its, in its most uh, distilled Nothing essence. Purer. Nothing purer. Uh, right, shall we uh, run down the top ten Let's at do the that. box office? Shall I start number ten with a... With a, an email? Or yes, please. Number okay. 10 is Dishoom, and this wasn't screened for critics, so unfortunately I haven't seen it. Is that a sign that it's not any good? Well, let's <laughs> let's read email and find out, well, because I don't know. Uh, this, this is from uh, Rahim, who says, Dishoom is a passable buddy cop comedy romp with a pleasant premise. Two cops are on a trail of a kidnapped Indian cricketer in Dubai. The locations are great, and Varun Dwan in particular impresses. With the natural cocky charm of a young Will Smith, he keeps things moving in an otherwise slightly slow movie. Well, look, the natural cocky charm of a young Will Smith is something we could have really done with. I mean, we'll come to this oh, later on in the programme, but we'll, it's something that... Hold fire. OK, OK. Let's say no more for, for now. <laughs> Hold far. Let's quickly move on to number nine then. Which is absolutely fabulous. The movie still sticking around, still doing pretty well. Um, this does, of course, the time-honoured trick of uh, moving uh, the cast of a sitcom on holiday when it's time to move to the feature-length uh, adaptation, as, as as done on the buses, as has done in between us two. Um, the, the, the thing that I really liked about this film was that the threatened cameo fest showbiz backslappy miasma that was promised by the trailers doesn't actually materialise there are a few scenes in the film where they pile all the cameos in uh, straight away just to get them out of the way and then most of it is to do with revitalising this brilliant chemistry between uh, Jennifer Saunders and uh, uh, Joanna Lumley in, in, in this kind of uh, old absolutely fabulous act that was you know I remember when I was uh, watched this film I think it was sorry watched this series when it was first on TV what was it early 90s 92 20 odd years old now these these were funny women, but they were also scary women. There was something very unnerving. You know, it was grotesque. It was slightly tragic. Their their, their constant pursuit of, uh, of of youth as they they slid further and further into middle age. And this film actually really recaptures that very nicely. There's this injection scene at the start where Patsy is kind of putting some unspeakable substance into her cheeks and lips, and it just has that kind of perfect mixture of uh, you know it, it it it's funny, but it's also grotesque and it does make you wince. And so I thought they recaptured that very well. Joanna Lumley is just brilliant in it I thought as well there's a great story that goes apparently so Naomi Campbell is one of the cameos in it and she is notoriously uh, difficult allegedly don't sue uh, and uh, she turned up late on set very late one day which held everybody up and you can imagine the you know the number of people involved to getting all those cameos on, on set and stuff like that uh, apparently a little floor manager who was very new to the job just went up to her and said listen this is a this is a collaborative effort if you're not in on time tomorrow you're not in the film she came in on time the next day. I bet she did. I love And maybe because there were 80 other cameo people to replace her if she didn't yeah, want it. Yeah, I loved to it. it. Uh, number nine then, absolutely fabulous. The movie at number eight. Ice Age Collision Course, which is melting fast, down another 68% from last week's box office take, which was already pretty meagre. The, this series is now on its fifth instalment and I think it's just kind of run out of steam uh, with audiences. I think we feel that we've seen enough of Ray Romano 
voicing a talking mammoth and kind of waddling towards the camera complaining about his life. That for me, you know, that can be done in four films. It can be done in one, to be honest. And the sequences of the Ice Age films that have always been the most enjoyable are these little asides with Scrat, yeah. the saber-toothed squirrel who's pursuing this nut. <laughs> a film that we come to later in the top ten actually now does what Scrat did in the Ice Age films far more successfully. And I think that's where audiences have gone to. OK. Uh, at number seven in the UK box office top ten. It's The Legend of Tarzan, a.k.a. Batman does a gap here. Oh, it's come on. Broody millionaire pops over to Africa to sort out slavery in his ripped. spare time. You missed out ripped in that description. No, OK. So, you know, Alexander Skarsgård is uh, looking good. We've also got Margot Robbie in this film. This is a summer of Margot Robbie, who is, you know, again, let's let's save the discussion. Of, in, in this <laughs> Can't one, help yourself. Maybe, you're like that. maybe the new film will be completely different. But in this one, she seems like she is, you know, operating at a significantly higher level than the material perhaps deserves. Wowee. Number six on the top ten. Is Ghostbusters, which uh, on its first wide uh, week of release in Europe and Russia, it's now made back its budget, so all of the people that were kind of uh, naysaying that that was ever going to happen, it it has now happened. Uh, Before we uh, move on to number five... That's right. In the top ten, let's get a couple of uh, guesses for this week's mystery sound and cinema. Let's have it one more time. (laughs) Uh, Anthony, uh, England in the Netherlands. Uh, it says, is it Ellen DeGeneres speaking chestnut-backed warbler? Nope. Dave says, I think this week's mystery noise is Tom Cruise auditioning for Florence Foster Jenkins. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Uh, if this feature is so terrible, how come we've already had two emails? Two? I've got it? more. I've in got just, more. I've got more. Goodness I've got more. Phil in Nottingham thinks it's a lemming linked to Suicide Squad. Uh, Rory in Cheshire says the sound is the venomous Dilophosaurus from Jurassic Park. Nope. Uh, Martin in Portsmouth says, Hello, Edith and Robbie. Thank you for livening up my boring afternoon at my work desk. My nerdy birder brain thinks the noise is a water bird, possibly a grebe or diver. Go on, make my afternoon. Not yet, I'm afraid. Not yet. Not yet. Not yet. Right, number five at the box office then. It's The Secret Life of Pets. This is the film that's uh, finding audiences where Ice Age Collision Course is failing to. It's a non-franchise family film, uh, still doing very well. The box office is just at about 40% this week, which is a really, really impressive hold. Essentially, the the, the premise is just Toy Story with dogs. Humans leave their apartments during the day and then dogs get up to mischief. Um, But what the film does, and this is something Illumination as a studio have done very, very well ever since they came up with Despicable Me, and and particularly the, the Minions played a key role in this is that they're making cartoons that go back to that kind of uh, Looney Tunes physical comedy thing that uh, CGI animation pretty much departed from, either with the snark of the Shrek films, really pop culture heavy stuff, or uh, the profundity of Pixar or trying to pick up on that. So they're, they're steering this third course through the market and, and it you know, is paying off. Um, all right, well, listen, if you want to guess what the Mr News is, by the way, I should say, uh, get in touch either on email, uh, mail at bbc.co.uk or you can text us 85058. I've got to say with Secret Life of Pets, I really enjoyed it. We must have watched the trailer at least 40 times before we went to see it. Didn't quite think it held up. It's not it's, the film the trailer promises, yeah, but it, there are moments of, 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 of real, I think, uh, animation genius in it. Yeah. There's a great bit where a sausage dog climbs up a fire escape and it's just, you know, yeah. the, 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 the kind yeah, of yeah. mental choreography to have worked out what that's going to look like is just so beautifully executed. And, you know, I'm not, uh, I don't think Illumination has yet made a great film, but I think this suggests that they've got a they've great got film potential. in it. Yeah. yeah, I love that bit in the trailer where that, that dog that you talk about is 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 addressing an itch using a, a, a mixing 
uh, a food process. Yes, right, right. Very, very funny indeed. Uh, right, number four uh, at the box office. Is Star Trek Beyond, which does exactly what a Star Trek film should be doing in a world that has a fully armed and operational Star Wars franchise now functioning in it. When the series was originally rebooted, that wasn't the case. People thought that it was kind of borrowing Star Wars' swashbuckling thing. And now you have a film that's about exploration, discovery, teamwork, signs and wonders throughout the, the galaxy's furthest reaches. And I just really, really enjoyed it. Uh, right, Adrian says of Star Trek... Uh, just out of my local cineplex in Bundorn, County Donegal, and I had to tell you that Star Trek Beyond made me a bit queasy. It wasn't a reasonable romp, but we'll only save that character's significant other in that big place that isn't Earth if we can reconfigure the 270-degree revolving upside-down zoom shot to allow the main character sets to share a meaningful stare and boost the underlying current of belongingness to Starfleet Lassie. <laughs> I don't know which one of these things repeated the most, but they all nearly made me lose my tea. Uh, Adrian, thank you very much indeed for that one. I like that a lot. That was great. That is good, but it is good. kind of what Star Trek should sound like. <laughs> all right, uh, moving on. Number three. Is Steven Spielberg's The BFG, uh, which, I mean, I think the interesting thing about Roald Dahl is he has such a singular style of writing that is just, you know, you read it, you instantly know it's Roald Dahl. But his stories have been adapted by a lot of different filmmakers who all have their own styles. Yeah. And, and, and adapted very successfully to those. You know, you've got Tim Burton, uh, Wes Anderson. Nick Rogue, Wes Anderson, of course, and now Spielberg. BFG and Spielberg are just, I think, a perfect fit. And you've got the technology now, which has progressed to the point where you can have these huge special effects-based set pieces, which are being directed and performed by Mark Rylance, who is just wondrous in this as intimately as you would a small, totally personal close-up scene. Do you think this is the point where finally a character who is, you know, he is CGI'd to, you know, he's, he's, a, he's a computer-generated character, kind of. It's a real performance. Mm -hmm. and, and the same thing that Andy Serkis has done so many times. Do you think this is the point where we'll finally see the recognition for the acting? I don't think it is, because okay. I think it still has to get past a certain um, mental blockage in Academy voters, BAFTA voters' heads. I would be amazed if many performances that are shortlisted in the coming year are as good as Mark Rylance in the BFG, but whether or not he'll actually be nominated is another question. Well, a couple of uh, correspondents. Isla, hello, I'm Isla from Perth. Uh, the hot one. Uh, I'm 12 years old. Uh, Long-term listener, first-time emailer. On the weekend, I went for a double movie-going experience. First, I went to Ghostbusters with some good friends and we all adored it. Second, I went to the movies with another friend and her mother to see the BFG and that's what I wanted to talk about. As a lover of the book, I was sceptical about this live action, but alas, the tickets were prepaid for, so I went. It was good. Not great, not bad, just good. I found some sequences were overstretched and some were way too quickly ended. Some ideas were just a bit left field and never really were touched on again it was kind of enjoyable but a forgettable experience wow really surprises me that uh, Pete says few hours out of BFG which I went to with my six year old daughter still replaying bits of it in my mind what a genuinely lovely piece of filmmaking so much heart and joy on the screen in my late 20s I went through a real anti-Spielberg phase of finding his things will be alright in the end template very annoying but now having kids and hoping that things might just be alright as he makes them seem I'm so glad he's still able to make movies like this one so much to enjoy from the almost balletic movements of the BFG creeping through London to the beautiful sparkles of his dream workshop. An amazing performance from young Ruby Barnhill, but best of all, though, the incredible kindness and warmth in every movement of the BFG's face and the resonance of Mark Rylance's voice. My daughter turned to me three quarters of the way through and just said, Daddy, this movie's Awesome. Uh, just a brilliant way to put all the recent horrors of the real world out of your head for two hours. Thanks to Spielberg and Rylance for delivering a treat that will bear multiple watchings. Pete in Canberra. Thank you very much indeed for that. 
tell you what, these uh, these things. Oh, they're guess, just flying in, my goodness. Yes, these are flying in. Do you want a couple more? I'm going to guess that's about, I mean, that's a pretty thick pile. We must have at least three more There's responses there. Six here. Uh, Dude, Chris and Putney thinks our mystery sound. Is he Tribble? Charlie on the M6 thinks it's a llama. Uh, mystery sound isn't Danny Dyer, says Mark Butterfield. From <coughs> Excuse me. Greg in Cornwall <laughs> says, is it the Joker's laugh in Suicide Squad? Uh, Jim in Harrogate says, the noise is making my dog really upset. Please, no more. <laughs> Can we just make Robbie the Danny Dyer... Robbie genuinely, <laughs> genuinely just spat his tea out across the desk at the Danny Dyer. Can we just make that person win? Oh, let's just find loads of Danny Dyer noises for the next... Next time we're on. Uh, right, and number two then in the top ten. It's Jason Bourne, which is the Bourne that you loved from previously. Uh, Matt Damon, Paul Greengrass, trimmed down and streamlined into this two hours of pretty much propulsive uh, chase and pursuit and combat. <laughs> uh, got a couple of correspondence about this one. Uh, Tom from Somerset saw Bourne last Sunday. All in all, brilliant. First thing to say is that it kind of uses the same formula as the previous films. There's a lot of material that's straight out of the original trilogy, but in a way that doesn't matter, mainly because it's what made Bourne so brilliant. Uh, action is brilliant, more intense car chases and brutally brutal fight, fist fights that make Marvel look even more naff. Some would say shaky camera goes too far. For me, it doesn't. Brilliant film. Uh, this is from Ian. Uh, according to the BBC film website, Matt Damon's dialogue in Jason Bourne consists of 288 words. They mean to say someone actually sat through this tripe to count his words? Jason Bourne has no plot. Violence for the sake of violence, and I'm pretty sure we are no better off from the previous film for sitting through it. What is the next instalment? Jason hires a half-decent scriptwriter. I think you've realised by now this film is not going to be one of my year's favourites. Yours, very disappointed. Uh, I loved the film, said uh, Lucille. When Robbie reviewed it, his criticism of Matt Damon's lead was that he had little dialogue and that what little he did offer was not enough to endear him to the audience. But I did care about his character. Um, in space where his body and mind were in limbo. I felt sad for him, but I didn't know where to direct that sadness. The film told a tale to me of being on the outside in so many ways. And there's a really good one here. Uh, this is from Martin. Dear holiday film show... Uh, user purrs. Um, I was watching the latest Bourne outing which despite being a relentless sequence of jiggly wiggly chases <laughs> great words jiggly wiggly chases we were looking for the technical term for jiggly shaky cameras we jiggly wiggly, wiggly yeah um, uh, it isn't actually exciting at all because you know that at the end of every sequence regardless of the peril on Jeopardy Matt Damon will come striding out in his bouncy way no matter what large objects have fallen on him I find myself thinking what does this remind me of what does it remind me of? And then it clicked. Jason Bourne is at heart a 123-minute episode of Roadrunner, Mimi, which Damon, as the eponymous and slightly annoying bird, and Tommy Lee Jones, he of the uh, Grand Canyon crater face, and Vincent Cassell sharing the role of the constantly thwarted and infuriated Wiley Coyote, Mimi Martin in Stockport. I love that just because I got to do it. Quite, quite a few times as well. Yeah, twice, just twice. Right at number one. It is Finding Dory, a Pixar sequel that was 13 years in the waiting and I think three or four years in the making, uh, which takes, as all great Pixar sequels do, characters and settings that we already know and uses them to tell a completely different story. Uh, right, a lot of correspondence. I'll get through as much of it as I can. That's the sound of a lot of correspondence. Eleanor, 
I am a 10-year-old girl called Eleanor and on the 29th of July my family and I went to go and see Finding Dory for my grand pop's birthday. He chose the film. Within the first 10 minutes, it had passed the six laughs test in flying colours. We all loved it. Most of us cried and we all welled up. It was funny, it was sad, but most of all, it was amazing. Ellen DeGeneres was fantastic as Dory and we loved her parents, especially my sister Hannah. All of the voice actors, actresses, did a brilliant job. Some of our favourite characters were Hank the Septipus, Bailey the Beluga, Destiny the Whale Shark, Becky the Loon and Gerald the Sea Lion. We loved the cuddly party otters. We were also thrilled by the reappearance of the turtles. Me too. Uh, they were just as cool as last time. I was astounded yet again by the animation. I thought that the Pixar animators really outdid themselves with this one. All in all, my family and I loved it and will definitely be making a purchase later this year. Eleanor, I think you're a future reviewer. That is amazing for a 10-year-old. Uh, more correspondence on Finding Dory. This is brilliant. This is from Jade. I am travelling in South America with a basic grasp of Spanish. I went to see... Buscando a Dory and loved it. I guess I was seeing it from a child's perspective, half understanding and looking at the pictures more than listening to the words, but this made me notice how magical it was. I laughed, I cried, I kept up with the plot, I enjoyed it so much and look forward to seeing it again in English when I return. That's brilliant. Uh, dear Scottish Substitutes, the reason for my email is not finding Dory, but the incredible short pipe that played beforehand. Uh, I have never been so captivated, enthralled and moved by such a short piece of filmmaking. When it started, I was convinced it was an animation due to the pure beauty and realism of the waves coming into the beach. I soon forgot about how good the animation was. However, as I became so invested in this gorgeous little bird's quest for food, it made me laugh harder than most two-hour films and Pixar managed to convey more emotion than I ever would have thought possible in a short that lasted less than five minutes. Even if you have no interest in finding Dory, I would still recommend forking out for a ticket just to see this masterpiece. Uh, keep up the fantastic work, Dan O'Connor and Pooh. It's extraordinary, yeah. Piper, and it's actually it's not the first time I've seen a Pixar short where I've thought this is oh they've done something in live action. It was one called The Blue Umbrella. A few films ago, I can't remember which film it was appended to, but you know it, it opens and you think, oh my goodness, this is a real New York street, and then you realise no, this is actually quite how far. Uh, the animation techniques have advanced. Well, listen, thank you very much for all your correspondence so far. Keep it coming in. Uh, and uh, before we get into Suicide Squad and Jared Leto, we need to... We've had an amazing response to our groundbreaking new feature. Oh, there we go. Someone else getting in touch with the show now to tell us about it. Uh, thank you very much to everybody who has been in touch today and given us these guesses, some phenomenal guesses. Not quite right, though. Uh, is the mystery sound? This is the mystery sound, by the way. Have a listen. <laughs> Can you can you replicate that? Well, you know, someone someone <laughs> no. last week suggested no. someone last week suggested that last week's mystery sound was the sound of someone's bottom being dragged down a pane of glass. <laughs> I'm now thinking maybe while you do that, that's the noise that you make uh, from your mouth. Maybe. Okay. Nope. Uh, KP says uh, is a mystery noise. Danny DeVito trying to get Steve Martin's attention <laughs> during the heist sequence that featured in that underappreciated 1983 comedy, The Louvre Larks. The Louvre. The Louvre Larks. Lark. I've yeah. never seen that. No, you lost me. Um, underappreciated that. Yeah. Kevin Amberdeen uh, says, uh, "Dear Doctor Finley and Janet, was the mystery noise Mark Kermode reviewing an Adam Sandler film?" Best <laughs> <laughs> wishes. Ross and Hackney. Is it Mark Kermode slowly lowering himself into an ice bath? Let's have a listen. It's another one from Jim, another Caramode-related one. The mystery sound is what Mark Caramode hears when someone tries to explain the rules of cricket to him. I think that's us all. Uh, Cornelius in Uppingham says, Hello, it's a peacock. 
No, it's not. Uh, Christian in Rustington, West Sussex, says, is the mystery sound a snippet of a Robbie Collin epic bassoon solo? <laughs> I didn't know this was a talent you kept to yourself. No, no, goodness, I've spoken about playing second bassoon a, a few times before. Have you? you know, that's well out second of the bassoon. bassoon. That's, don't mock. I'm so not the, mocking, the second I'm bassoon, If anything, the second bassoon's more important than the first bassoon. Of course it is. But that sound is out with its natural range. I mean, I think to, to get that, okay. you'd probably have to kind of pull the, the crook out and go freestyle with just the reed. It would, wow. be, it would be weird. <laughs> Please, can you bring your bassoon in next time we're doing the show together? We can make, we can do, take the feature that can be further. the mystery sound. Guess the sound that Robbie's playing on the bassoon. Right, Suicide Squad. What's it about, Robbie? Okay, we'll get your so, review later, but what's it about? Suicide Squad is basically Warner Brothers' second chance after Batman versus Superman, which of course was released just back in March this year, yeah. to create not just a superhero film that turns a profit, but establishes a cinematic universe that uh, a large number of cinema goers are going to want to spend time in. Obviously, they're trying to replicate the success uh, that Disney and, and, and Marvel have had with their Avengers series. Now, although this film features Batman, who's played again by Ben Affleck, and the Joker reintroduces him, the new version played by Jared Leto, of course, who we're going to hear from shortly to, I think you would probably say, even perhaps more so than Superman, the two uh, DC superstars of, of, of this whole kind of franchise. It centres on this dirty dozen-like group of second-tier uh, villains that are assembled by Viola Davis's Secret Services agent, basically to weigh in on any metahuman-based trouble uh, where heroes would fear, uh, would fear to tread. Uh, among them, you have uh, Deadshot, who's played by Will Smith, this ace assassin. Uh, ace, ace, ace assassin? Ace assassin, yes. Um, ace assassin, uh, <laughs> and the world's greatest marksman. And you also have Harley Quinn, played by Margot Robbie, who was uh, Naomi LaPaglia in Wolf of Wall Street, just total star-making performance in that film. She plays uh, the Joker's protege and lover Harley Quinn who is kind of for comic book readers a bit of a fan favourite character in order to understand Harley Quinn though you have to understand uh, the man who corrupted her and that of course is where Leto's Joker comes in Indeed Uh, so my conversation with Mr Jared Leto in a moment first a clip from the film What do we have here? What are you going to do? Are you going to kill me Mr J? What? Oh, I'm not going to kill you. I'm just going to hurt you really, really bad. That was a clip from Suicide Squad, and I'm absolutely delighted to be joined by one of its stars, Mr. Jared Leto. Hello, sir. How are you? Hey, how's it going? Very well, thank you very much. Um, Can I start, this might seem weird, but by asking you to describe the film to me? Uh, It it might be a weird question, (laughs) considering I haven't seen it. Wow. Well, this is even better then. Can you describe what you think the film is about from being in it and reading the script then, or or Uh, if you read them? This is what I assume it's about. A group (laughs) of villains that are called to arms, that are called into action by the government to uh, do something that is probably uh, a bit uh, suicidal, um, but may gain them... Uh, some retribution and maybe slightly easier sentences or shorter sentences. Um, uh, yeah, and then there's the Joker. I so, <laughs> which I, I don't really know how the Joker fits into the film, but when at least when I read the script, the Joker was uh, kind of a parallel story. Um, and my character, the Joker, was uh, out to... Uh, rescue Harley and get Harley back from the Suicide Squad. 
Well, this is because for me, this is the heart of the film. It's what makes, uh, I think, the audience really engage with the the kind of irredeemable supervillains is that you're this character and this relationship between the Joker and Harley Quinn. It's real. There's real heart to it. There's there's real connection. There's real emotion. Um, and um, I want to ask about the chemistry between you and Margot because it's 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 quite unique. I yeah. think. Um, was that instant? It's pretty easy to have chemistry with Margot Robbie, <laughs> I have to admit. Uh, and she was really great. She was so nice. She was so patient, uh, which you have to be when the Joker is around. She, she was wonderful. She's a great actress, and uh, uh, I really liked working with her a lot. A perfect partner in crime. Because, um, you know, you approached the show with a method, you know, in being Mr. J and being this character. But did you guys, did you, did you have an opportunity or did you talk to her prior to this? Or was it a case of you were this character when you started on this production and with her, you know, when you two I, started? I really just played the game. And the game was to set up a dynamic between uh, the Joker and the rest uh, of the squad uh, that would be kind of close and appropriate to the circumstances of the story. And it was really fun. It, it wasn't something that was kind of um, uh, too serious or I, I think everybody really enjoyed the, the game that was being played. We really had a, a, a magical time. We, I think the scenes that we did on the day, and I understand there's quite a bit that's been cut out, um, but the scenes that we did on the day were some of the uh, my favorite work that I've ever done with anyone uh, uh, in a film. The, he's, a, he's a character who's been around for 75 years and yeah. there are so many reference points for you in terms of how you interpret him and how you make him your own um, and create your own Joker. Um, did you spend a lot of time, you know, looking way back to the to how and where he, he started and, and what formed the basis of, of your Joker? I started digging in and reading everything that I could, and at a certain point I realized I needed to stop because there was too much material and I was getting buried in it. And also, I think because there were so many interpretations, reimaginings of the Joker, I I did feel at a certain point a sense of freedom, of liberty, to walk down an entirely new path. So that's what we did. And how early were you were you on board with this in terms of you know with, with chatting to David about it and uh, I think I may have been one of the last people uh, cast in the film, uh, but we had a significant amount of time to panic and uh, <laughs> which you do when you get asked to play the Joker you have this tremendous amount of pressure, but also excitement. I think because there had been such phenomenal performances uh such beautiful work done by these incredible actors like jack nicholson heath ledger mark hamill uh, his voice work other voice actors so many people cesar romero from the original television series everyone has has created such an iconic character uh that uh there was a, a great deal of pressure to to really um to do our best. I love the sound of him. I think he's, whether it's the kind of the breathing or the kind mm. of the weird, undescribable sounds that sort of, yeah. he's, he's able to kind of create. It's, 
It's yeah. kind of a weird feed and comfort in the same thing, I think, that comes out of him. Yeah. What was the first thing that you created Thank of you. him? Uh, you know, it's, it's interesting because behavior is such a big one mm. for him. And, um, you know, sometimes he's a, a panther. Other times he's a hyena, a snake, or just a pig. Uh, but, uh, yeah, he's very animalistic in a way, very guttural, but also highly intelligent. Um, his voice, I think, is really key, and that's something that I worked on a lot. Uh, I mean, he has a much bigger range in his voice. He doesn't sound so monotonous and boring like I do. <laughs> he has uh, a lot of color, as, as he should. You know, I think the Joker is the perfect villain because he's the antithesis of Batman, who's this stoic, black-and-white character, both visually and in so many other ways, morally. Uh, he's he's someone who strives for perfection and control, uh, filled with res- restraint, and the Joker is complete and total insanity, you know, technicolor uh, madness, and uh, I think that's why he's so much fun to play. I think that's why people love him, and yeah. they want reincarnations, and they want new you know, interpretations of him. Yeah. Yeah, I'm not the first, and I certainly won't be the last. Am I whispering too much? <laughs> I quite what like happens when people do making everybody really soothing. Raise, and uh, radio, right. they all get like radio voice? I yeah. guess because I just woke up. <laughs> okay. You sound great. It's fine. Um, I wanted to talk about, um, uh, get a little bit into the, if you wouldn't mind talking about the method process and, mm-hmm. and how, how that act, you know, the reality of that works on a set with a director. Because I imagine you have to have the... The, the relationship with the director where you can go, this is how I do it, this is how I want to do it. Because if he's not on board, then it's going to make it difficult for both of you. Uh, yeah, and I think a lot more difficult for him, probably. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Especially if you're dealing with a Joker. But uh, David was really interested in whatever was going to get the best performance. And I think most directors are uh, kind of fall in line with that. And everyone has their own process, whether it's... You know, preparing for an interview, the research you you do uh, uh, on on Google or at the library. Um, some people use music while they're painting if they're artists, and uh, or, or maybe they they you know use meditation to get uh, somewhere they need to go. And uh, so I, I think everybody has a process, and I have mine. And and what I did with the Joker was just really stay as focused and committed as possible. Uh, it was really important. I, I felt a responsibility to the other performances, to the, the fans of the DC universe, to the other actors and all the people involved with this film. I felt a responsibility to do my absolute best. So what I did and what I've done before is I just try to shut as many distractions out as possible and, and just stay focused and committed. I, I, I don't really walk around thinking you know, oh, I'm the Joker, you know, I don't, you know, for me, it's more, um, it's a practice, it's a game, it's uh, psychology, it's, it's, it's exploring circumstances and relationships, and, and creating dynamics. How does he direct you, though, when you're in that, you know, you're in that zone? Is it, uh, or does it, he not? It's, it's, uh, you know, I think he comes away with some, uh, some, uh, Bleeding, I should say, <laughs> but I think that the I I brought so much to the table in every scene. It was probably more about filtering uh, all of the insanity because it, you know I 
I, I wanted to give a lot of options. And, mm-hmm. you know, I think there's probably enough footage in this film for uh, a Joker movie. If I were to die tomorrow, maybe the studio would roll something out, um, you know, a uh, uh, rated R or rated X performance in there somewhere. I want to see a I want to see a spin-off um Joker and, and Harlequin movie like that, the DC r- rom, sort of you know rom-com yeah. between the two of them. That would be sick and twisted fun. I mean I I, <laughs> I always wish this film was rated R and I had actually said that when we had when we were starting it felt like you know if, if a film was ever going to be rated R it should be the one about the villains. <laughs> Um, we've had an amazing amount of questions come in from, from oh, really? your fans and from DC fans as well. Oh. Um, if you wouldn't mind me asking a couple of those. Sure. Um, Carl says, um, if you were to return as the Joker, is there another DC villain that you would like to team up with? That's a great question, Carl. I, I think that the most compelling character to team up would be, to team up with would be uh, Batman. I know he's not a villain, uh, but it just would be so Is much he? Isn't fun. Isn't he though? Isn't he? To some, <laughs> and in some versions, I think he has been a kind of a villain. Uh, but I think that the, you know, the thing about this film is for a lot of people, the Joker uh, is exciting when he's pulling the strings. Uh, and in this film, it's more of an introduction to the Joker. Uh, and and as it, as the film stands now, I think it's you know it's it's much more of a supporting part than a lot of people may have assumed, but um, it feels like there could be more to come. That makes me assume there is going to be more to come. I think it entirely depends upon the response of the public. If they if they respond to this Joker. You know, I could imagine the Joker coming back, uh, but if they don't, you know, I certainly wouldn't want to overstay my welcome. Um, Phil says, what, if anything, did you learn about yourself whilst portraying the character? I think I relearned that old cliche that it's really important to prepare. Uh, the more you prepare, the the more fun things are, number one, the less stressful things are. And I think the greater sense of ease you have with your work, the more freedom you have, the more likely you are to take chances. So I I relearned that old lesson about preparation. Two more questions. Stuart says, uh, I suggest watching Requiem for a Dream with any girl I meet after two or three dates uh, as a barometer of how well we're matched. I'm currently single. Thank you for that. <laughs> I love that question. It's not even a question. Say, I was going to yeah. say, you haven't Whoa, that. yeah. yeah. Uh, question from uh, Edith Bowman. Um, your other job as a musician, 30 yeah. Seconds to Mars, when's the new album coming out? The new album will probably <laughs> be out. It'll probably be probably? out. Probably? Uh, probably be out. Yeah, probably. God, I'm so slow. I, I, every great. album I say to myself... You know what? I'm going to put out an album a year, or album every two years. I say that for I've said that for 15 years, uh, and I can never do it. It's always four years or something. Well, you're off winning Oscars and stuff. You know, you kind of you got yeah, distractions. Yeah, but I, I've made two movies in nine years, so I don't know if that's a very good excuse. Uh, I think the amount of work we 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 whittled it down was like 40 or 50 days of acting work on set I've done in nine years. So that's not a good excuse for me. I'm just slow. So uh, I, th- I think it'll be out um, in 2017. 
we haven't really announced that yet. So wow, heard it here first. Um, but maybe the beginning of 2017 would be good. I think the sooner in my, in my, if I have my way, the sooner, the better. Um, we'd like to get back on tour. It feels like we haven't played in the UK forever. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I hope people still remember us. Um, we, <laughs> it's I think you'll be so, all right. It's been, it's been so long since we've been to all these uh, places around the UK. I Manchester, think... Liverpool, London. Glasgow. Don't forget the Scots. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, listen, I'm excited about that, and I, and congratulations. And I just want to see more of him. I want I want to see more of the Joker. Yeah, so me too. Fingers crossed. Me too. I kind of fell in love with that freak. <laughs> Jared, thank He's you. He's not that bad a He's, guy, uh, right? Do you know what? I think when we scratch the surface and we yeah. kind of dig deep and we, we kind of, you know, we get to know the real Mr. Underneath J. Underneath all the murder and torture, he's <laughs> yeah. really just a sweetheart. Jared, pleasure as always. Thank you, sir. Cheers. Thank you. Uh, there we go. Uh, well, Robbie's review will hold it till after three o'clock. So I know you've got a lot to say about this film. What's your reaction to Mr. Leto? He seems nice. Oh, man. <laughs> he does what? seem nice. He does. Blokes don't like Jared Leto, do they? I have no beef with Jared Leto at all. <laughs> right, well, she'll talk more. We've got some great correspondence from people. Uh, Graham says, uh, yesterday I went to a packed cinema in Brussels to see DC's latest offering. I noticed the early reviews were less than stellar, but one or two, three or four star reviews gave me hope. How quickly that hope dissipated into shock, uh, into crippling apathy. First off, I can't stress enough that I absolutely adored the visual aspect of the film. The colour palette airs chose definitely seemed fresh for the genre, somewhere in between the Hong Kong action movies of the 80s and 90s and a David Fincher movie. Also, he embraces a certain grungy comic book aesthetic that I personally haven't seen depicted on film. Sadly, nice visuals alone doth not a good film make and Suicide Squad suffers from some of the worst action, acting and script I've seen in a blockbuster. It's a film seemingly made up of 20 second bits that would look good in a trailer with the plot a very distant concern. I couldn't decide for the action scenes at all due to the ridiculous editing, meaning that as the film reached its climax and the action was ramped up, I found myself utterly bored at the cacophony of CGI dust and lightning fire. Warner Brothers had a stellar cast, an interesting property and a director for this project and still managed to completely miss the mark. Uh, bizarrely, the packed cinema applauded at the end of the movie. I imagine half of them were just glad it was over. Ooh, Graham Peel. Uh, Aaron says, uh, Suicide Squad, the tap water of superhero movies, totally inoffensive but also a little boring. The movie lacks any sort of emotional core, is rarely more than forgettable and is littered with music used better in other movies. DC has once again taken characters with history and depth uh, and with practised ease pronounced them flat onto the screen. On a positive note, for once, uh, Jay Courtney wasn't the worst thing in a movie, so that was a nice surprise. Thank you very much indeed from Aaron, a very long-term listener. All right, we've got loads more reviews coming in from you guys. If you want to send them in, please do. Uh, And also more from Robbie as well, including his review of uh, Suicide Squad, which if you read his column, you'll know exactly where he's heading on this one. Uh, Still to come then, another hour of film conversation, uh, including other reviews. We've got reviews of Sid and Nancy, Sweet Bean, The Carer, Bobby Sands, 66 Days and Up for Love and also Suicide Squad, which we're about to do now, I think. Yeah, go for it. Yeah, okay, so look, let's. we heard from Jared Leto before before the news. I want to start with with his portrayal of the Joker because it is immediately the worst ever screen version of this character that I've ever seen. But... Keen as you seem to be to to drum up some animosity, kind of personal grudge between me and and, and Jared, I don't think it's his fault. You know, I mean, the, the character to me, I mean, it, it comes across like Richie from Bottom got into trap music. I mean, it's just this kind of totally awful, awful uh, version of the character. 
Leto rightly paid tribute to the other actors who've, who've played the Joker, uh, Cesar Romero in the original TV series, Jack Nicholson, Heath Ledger, of course, who won an Oscar for it. But there's no reason that he couldn't have done something equally as uh, interesting and singular as any of these characters. You know, you look at treatments of the Joker, in, even in just the Batman graphic novels. Um, there's one written by Grant Morrison called Arkham Asylum a, a long, long time ago, where the Joker is this kind of pansexual trickster character drawn from Carl Jung. And it's just like a treatment that we've never seen before on screen. You could go in that direction. You could go in countless others. But instead, they have made them this kind of uh, swaggering wannabe gangster. And, you you know, to, to understand why this version of the Joker doesn't work, you just have to look at the way uh, in which he behaves, uh, how he dresses and what he stands for. You know, the, the green hair, whereas with Jack Nicholson, that was uh, a result of chemical burns. Heath Ledger, someone talks about it being part of his war paint. With Leto's character, it seems like a style choice. And, you know, he's a tattoo, he, you know, he's got tattoos, he's got jewellery, he wears designer clothes, he likes hanging out in the VIP area of strip clubs. So we know from his behaviour that he is someone who is enthralled to trends and worries about his personal image and is obsessed with status. Now, at a stroke, that stops him being scary. So the way in which this character has been assembled and it, it gets to the heart of what is completely wrong with Suicide Squad is it takes these iconic characters like Batman, like the Joker, and also this uh, stable of other characters who have the potential to become iconic, not least of all Harley Quinn. And it makes them uh, vapid and poserish and irritating in pursuit of a kind of edginess, an idea of edginess that is totally, totally exterior to the source material from which they've been drawn. So what's doubly exasperating about it is I think Suicide Squad is exactly the right property by which DC could could G up the, the, the cinematic universe. Largely speaking, these are unknown characters. People do not come to them with expectations aside from the Joker and aside from Batman. The Dirty Dozen concept works. I mean, it's it's kind of the DC equivalent of Guardians of the Galaxy, which of course did such great business for Marvel, the James Gunn It's Gunfield. not really, though. Just well, because it, they're slightly secondary characters, you can't just instantly compare it to Guardians of the Galaxy. Well, no, but they're secondary characters who have checkered pasts and who people don't really have any foreknowledge of. What Marvel did with Guardians of the Galaxy was they effectively launched a new kind of comic sci-fi franchise. And there was a lot less expectation on the table with Guardians of the Galaxy as well. But whose fault is that expectation? Because Warner Brothers have mm, been yeah. mercilessly marketing Suicide Squad ever since Batman vs Superman flopped, not financially but in terms of establishing that core fan base that they wanted it to establish. Warner Brothers have been hyping and hyping and hyping and you can see the way in which the film has morphed if you watch the trailers in order from this incredibly downbeat uh, gritty David Ayer style film and David Ayer by the way is the ideal director to make a good go of Suicide Squad if you look at his previous work he is someone who understands this kind of chemistry between people who have come from bad backgrounds the dark and, underworld yes and who are like three steps away from death at any time if you think about his film Fury that he made the, the, the tank movie with the World War II tank movie with Brad Pitt how does that film begin? With this noble soldier riding across a misty battlefield. And you think, OK, this looks like the introduction of our hero. And then Brad Pitt's character skulks out of the shadows and I think leaps onto the horse and slits the guy's throat immediately. And you think, oh, OK, this is who we're rooting for. So Air can do this kind of stuff. But if you look at the way in which the trailers have developed, we had that gritty one to start with. Then suddenly, when everyone likes, you know, fun and jokes, and this was what we learned from, from the success of the Marvel films, you get the the trailer with backed by the Sweets Ballroom Blitz and all these jokes. Apparently, all the jokes in that trailer were all the jokes that they had, and that was one of the reasons they had to go back and reshoot such a large part of the, the movie. So the, the, the problem with it is, is that even though... The raw material is lined up 
and the filmmaking talent is lined up. And you can't say that the cast is not talented as well. You know, yeah. you've got Will Smith and you've got Margot Robbie, uh, who, who are both terrific. You, I mean, you, also you, you have uh, Jay Courtney, who was mentioned. He plays a character uh, called Captain Boomerang, whose superpower is owning a boomerang. <laughs> uh, but, you know, by and large, you've got interesting characters and interesting actors who can do, who can do stuff with this. Uh, but it just never comes together. And the problem is entirely to do with tone and it's to do with structure as well. The first act of the film, introduction, 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 introduction. Will Smith's character gets probably about three introductions, I think. And it's it's just, it betokens a movie that has no idea what foot it wants to get off on and in what direction it's going. Once we've met the, all of the Suicide Squad, uh, who are brought together, as I said, by Viola Davis's Secret Service agent, to go and carry out this mission against uh, Enchantress, who is this kind of mystical supervillain played by Cara Delevingne, uh, the rest of the mission takes up the entire film and they're kind of fighting their way through this deserted city through rain, 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 gritty, 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 rain, 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 gritty, 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 rain, 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 gritty, gritty, gritty. <laughs> and then Will Smith comes along. His character, Deadshot, has this daughter uh, who this is basically the entirety of Will Smith's character is that he is a father and he has a daughter who he is slightly finds hard to reconcile his parental duties with going out and murdering people for a living. So he's like, I'm a dad, I'm very sad, I'm a dad, I'm very sad. Gritty, 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 rain, 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 gritty, gritty, rain, rain, rain. I'm a dad, very sad, very sad, very sad. Then you get a big action sequence where one or more of the squad gets to do whatever their gimmick is, if it's Will Smith shooting a lot of very people quickly, if it's Jay Courtney throwing a boomerang at someone. And then you cut to Harley Quinn who will say something, well, that was crazy. And then you just reset the pieces and do that again and again and again and again until they get to the station uh, where Carla De- Cara Delevingne's character is hanging out. Now, if we're talking about representi- you know, representation of uh, non-white characters and female characters and blockbusters, is a very, very hot topic at the moment. Mm-hmm. The way in which Suicide Squad deals with this is just beneath contemptible because the instant that any female character is put into the you know the, the line of danger they immediately uh, dress up in in margot robbie's case hot pants and a kind of a tube top or in cara delevingne's character she gets a kind of a supernatural bikini and her master plan i mean i don't even she kind of conjures up a big giant donut made of bricks in the middle of the city <laughs> which spins around and then a CGI brother appears. This is part of the, the, the big plan. I don't know what. And she's standing in the middle of it. And the way in which she operates this is she kind of does this weird gyrating dance that to me she's is... conjuring up evil she's, she's, forces she's, she's, she's fight against the world. She's kind of swivelling on the spot, like when Stan Laurel in the old Laurel and Hardy shorts would get onto one of these sort of waist-slimming machines that's like got a rubber belt and sort of jiggle around. That's what she looks like. And it is just so incredibly humiliating. I mean, you cringe on behalf of, of, of all the cast members while this is going on. And then in the middle of, of course, everyone has superpowers. Cara Delevingne, uh, when, when she has to do her um, Enchantress superpowers, she's very upset because she's been taken over by a ghost. Will Smith's very upset because he has to kill people and he's got a daughter. Uh, everyone's upset all the time. Upset, upset, upset. <laughs> and yet they all keep stopping to say, isn't this fun? It's time to have fun. Let's have some fun. They no, don't nobody, actually Nobody say is that. having any fun. They do. They're constantly saying it. Like Margot Robbie going... We're bad, We're bad guys. guys. This yeah. is what we do, and all this kind of thing. Well, what is what you do? You just kind of standing around here moaning and grumping in exactly the same way as we were promised would not happen in this film because nobody liked it in Batman versus Superman. It's not Batman versus Superman. This is my thing with it, right? I think that because of of 
kind of what happened with Batman versus Superman. Everybody's kind of, I think, especially kind of critics' assumption is that it's going to be as bad as that sort of thing. There's so much almost expectation for it to fail. Do you not think that a lot of people just want to go into that cinema for two hours? Because, you know, it's, it's a two-hour film. It's an escapism. It's it's not meant to be thought about. It's not meant to be dissected. It's meant to kind of be there to to recognise those pop tunes that are used in it and effort to make you feel whatever way it is. It's meant to kind of, you know, not be thought about so much. But look, the pop tunes is the perfect example of how cynically this has been constructed because Guardians of the Galaxy, I think, had like the best selling soundtrack album of all time that didn't contain any original music on it. It had that fantastic, what was yeah. it? Um, mixtape Volume 1. I yeah. forget the name of it, but it was... The, this kind of jukebox-style soundtrack that worked so perfectly for that film. Someone somewhere has written a memo to David Ayer, I have no doubt, um, and said, we need to do what Guardians of the Galaxy did. And so in the first half of the film, and it's forgotten in the second half, but in the first half you get pop hit, pop hit, pop hit, all kind of ironically juxtaposed against horrible violence or something. There's a sequence in which Will Smith's character, Deadshot, is first given his arsenal of weapons back. And you have basically him uh, lovingly firing machine gun after machine gun. See, I like that. At lots of uh, targets to the sound of Kanye West Black Skinhead. You think it's just so incredibly cynical because they have seen it working somewhere else and they have adopted the oh, format the without understanding the spirit of it. But it's not the first time it's been done. You know, Guardians of the Galaxy is not the first film to use a great pop music soundtrack. I mean, Tarantino's been doing it for years, sort of thing. But I think, you know, I think the way that the music was, and especially when they commissioned certain people to do specific tracks for the film they were shown bits from the film and they were you know asked to make music specifically for it recreate popular contemporary music tracks for it as well I thought that first 20 minutes specifically when they introduced the characters to almost kind of like here's a theme tune for this character almost like each character had its own music video I quite like that whole idea and that mechanic of it but the songs in themselves don't have any relation to what's going on other than here's a cool pop or rock track that you might recognise, White Stripes, um, you know, um, Black Sabbath at one point, I think. We'll come on to talk about another film uh, in a moment that used Black Sabbath incredibly well. But it's just, like, oh, you recognise this, this is fun. It's There's no kind of connection between the music and what's happening that is in any way kind of sparky or exciting or ironic in the same way as Tarantino does. It's not as simple as sitting down. And going through your album collection and going, I like this music. Let's put this alongside a sequence of Will Smith shooting guns at things. Do you think David Ayer's made the film we wanted to make or the film that's in cinemas is the film that David Ayer wanted to... No, I don't think so. And I think you can see these kind of David Ayer-esque bits when you're watching. There's a character played by Ike Barnholtz, who's this uh, smirking tough guy prison guard at Bell Rev, which is the um, insane asylum where most of these bad guys are being held at the start of the film. He is a David Ayer character. He makes more of an impact than about half of the squad members uh, in some. You know, you have when Jay Courtney turns up with a boomerang. You know, this is not a character. This is just a kind of a sort of mannequin with a prop. But Ike Barinholtz is, is, is there and he's kind of doing interesting things. He's kind of saying this smarky, cynical, tongue-in-cheek dialogue. And it feels like he's the kind of bad person that David Ayer could have told an interesting story about. OK. Uh, should we do some a couple of emails? Let's. Oh, yeah, OK. Uh, this is some correspondence uh, on regards to Suicide Squad. Alec Ferris, a Brit spending a year as a colonial kimono. Uh, dear doctors or supply teachers, depending on which week the film gets reviewed, I saw Suicide Squad in a 20-person cinema in an aquarium in New Zealand. Wow. While it wasn't actively uh, atrocious, it was extremely messy and ended up being a real slog. The pace veered between frenetic, with shots feeling as if they ended at least a second too early, and the rest of the time the film had an oddly ambling feel. 
Uh, the squad spent most of the run time hiking over to their objective and the villains aren't remotely proactive nor fleshing out enough to feel like a threat. The film tries to cast itself as a Deadpool-like sidelong riff on superhero movies but can't reconcile that with the sheer amount of world-building it attempts to tackle as well, which also means that only a handful of characters get a chance to shine. Add to that a lack of any memorable action and we're left with a failed mission on a film. Um, greetings, Edith and Robbie. Uh, strangely, sorry, I was looking forward to seeing the ensemble of colourful anti-heroes hit the screen in Suicide Squad, seeing as the anti-hero theme is pretty hot following the success of Deadpool. Strangely, despite being a big-budget film, the ropey special effects and poor design choices, as with everything DC, everything takes place in the dark, gives the film a really low-budget feel. The squad frequently take uh, on nondescript groups of poo-headed monsters that wouldn't have looked out of place in a Power Rangers episode and bless them, Will Smith and Robbie do try their hardest but they were never going to come out well of a film as disjointed and incomprehensible as this. The film flops around from ori- origin story to flashback to leany shots of Harlequin's bum to scenes featuring Jared Leto's Joker. Uh, every now and then the film pans to confused looking men in war rooms shouting things like what's going on? Uh, they must have been watching the film too. There's even a really strange part in the film at the 90 minute mark where they recap an earlier scene basically by replaying the same scene again to the benefit of no one except those who may have nipped to the toilet at that time. Uh, another one? This is from Ross. After watching Deadpool and seeing the press release for Suicide Squad, I got a little excited to the extent that I went to a midnight screening. When the film starts with a very good soundtrack similar to Deadpool, I thought we were in for a similar ride. I was pretty disappointed, though. After the far too quick flashback sequence to introduce the characters, it just boiled down to a mediocre action film. Um... Suicide squads? Or, yeah, OK. Here we go. Uh, here we go. This is from Louise. Hi. Went to a Cityworld Wakefield 11am 3D. Crazier than a sack full of weasels. Brilliant. What parallel universe did Robbie watch it in? There we go. That's the good one. Uh, Dominic says, Just a quick note, as I must admit that I'm really surprised by the mixed reviews this has received. I went to see it this morning. I had a thoroughly enjoyable couple of hours. The plot actually holds together better than most superhero movies, even if the climatic battle was a bit generic. But the dialogue was excellent, the effects solid, the cast frankly pretty stellar, and the jokes both frequent and funny. It also had a really well-selected soundtrack. There were definite foot-tapping happenings at times. To summarise, the overall experience of watching it was, you know, actually fun. I suspect hardcore DC fans might well hate it for exactly the same reasons I liked I liked it. Definitely feels like someone took the Marvel film playbook on board when it comes to swapping dark for enjoyable. But I left the cinema a very happy bunny. For too long it's felt like every DC film is a failed attempt to follow the formula that only Christopher Nolan could actually make work. This time someone's thrown that formula out the window and created something that audiences are actually meant to smile while watching. I did. Uh, and then J- Jack says... Um, I am a BVS, DOG, hating cinephile who has just returned from an early showing of Suicide Squad. And for me, it's a mixed bag. I was a fan of the performances. Viola Davis especially stole the show. I and I enjoyed Cara Delevingne's strange physical performance, which I expected to be polarising. Most of the jokes hit for me and I enjoyed the visual style, but the structure of the film was messy and seemed shredded to pieces in post-production. However, by far the worst aspect of the film was the big finale, which at one very particular moment suddenly descended into generic nonsensical and misogynist boredom. Um, there was a quick shot, uh, cut to a shot of Margot Robbie's bottom while she was being attacked. Overall, it was certainly not another BVS, Batman vs Superman, uh, but it was clearly not a success either. Here's to more DC mistakes. Jack Henderson. Loads of correspondence, thank you. I mean, and it's just the sheer fixation on Margot Robbie's bottom. I think the day I saw That's that film, bum. I saw more of Margot Robbie's bottom than I did my own kids. 
But the thing is, you have to think about why the why is the camera constantly taking up this position behind Margot Robbie's bottom? What you know, who is this kind of pandering to? I want to mention a sequence in the film uh, that involves Batman. It's around um, Batman has a kind of an extended cameo in Suicide Squad. It happens very very early in the movie, uh, where he runs the Joker mobile off the road and he pulls uh, Harley Quinn's uh, body. Actually, no, sorry, she swims free of the car while it's underwater. No, she's in the front. She's lying over it, unconscious to start. Batman, but Batman punches her unconscious. Then he hauls her body out of the river. He does. Underwater, he punches her unconscious. She goes through the windscreen as the car yeah. goes through. She's lying across unconscious. He pulls her out, then lays her over on the on the, on the the bonnet. So he pulls an un- unconscious body. Well, he thinks he's unconscious, yeah. Out of, out the, of the car. Out of the car. Yeah. Okay. He Gives takes it along the, do- the dock side, dumps it in the Batmobile's boot, Gives her mouth to mouth that I doubt the Red Cross would approve of. It looks like there's tongue involved, basically. And then the moment she comes round, he pins her down to the ground, round her, her throat with his, uh, you know, black gloved hand. Now this whole sequence is shot from Batman's point of view. You know, the camera is behind his shoulder. We are supposed to be identifying with him as the hero, basically having this clandestine encounter with the prone body of a young woman on the dock site. Now, who is supposed to be getting a thrill out of this? Who are DC directing these movies for? I have a theory about this. I think this is an injection of a, of a question about Batman's, uh, you know, about what I was saying to Jared about him. Is he actually a good guy or is he a villain sort of thing? Because, you know, whenever you see Affleck in this, he looks like he's having a bad day. You know, he's yeah, no, like, no, he is. And I'm so, sure he was. So it's kind of but like the, that idea but of the problem like, with doing oh, this, he's not look, a good guy. You can do what you like with the Batman character. You can make him behave like a sex attacker if you want. But to shoot that in a way that says, this is what Batman's doing and you are going to vicariously enjoy it is what I find completely disgusting. And I don't know, you know, you can make up this kind of... In Batman vs Superman, he's running around with machine guns and he's... Well, you are implicitly by placing the camera in a way that makes the viewer identify Who's telling you that you should enjoy that? Why why should you feel... Well, the camera is. No, no, but why... But but I, as a viewer, I didn't enjoy that. I I kind of, like, it started to make me question why. But that's because it's not for you. And you have to ask, who is it for? If they wanted to make that sequence scary, the camera would be in Harley Quinn's point of view. You would see Batman's looming silhouette being, you know, picked up. Carried along the, the dockside. That's how you stage that sequence if you want to make Batman a sinister threat. In the way in which it's been staged, it's supposed to be a transgressive thrill. Man, I just don't think about things so deep when I'm watching them. Man alive. Uh, mystery sound as well. We've got loads of those. Should we do them later or should we do them now? Should we? Let's just do them a bit later on. Let's get our, let's do Sid and Nancy uh, talking about happy, lighthearted films. <laughs> right. Um, misogynistic and slightly dark. Uh, yes, yeah, Sid and Nancy's been re-released. Yes, it is. Uh, 30, uh, th- wow. 30 years on. Um, this is, you know, after the corporatised, sanitised punk of Suicide Squad. This film, the real thing is, I mean, it's like an ice-cold fire hose in the face. It's it's 30th anniversary restoration of Alex Cox's biopic of Sid Vicious, the bassist from the Sex Pistols, and Nancy Sponge and his girlfriend. Um, Alex Cox, of course, directed Repo Man and uh, he co-wrote Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas for Terry, for Terry Gilliam. Um, the restoration has been supervised by Roger Deakins, the, the famous cinematographer, oh, wow. who shot Sid and Nancy at a very, very early stage in his career. Um, and one of the great pleasures of it is that you can see all these Deakins ticks and style choices in their infancy before he was able to further refine them. And, you know, he's worked with the Coen brothers countless times. And he, he shot Skyfall, of course, uh, for Sam Mendes as well. And he's working on the new Blade Runner now. So you can see the kind of uh, seeds of a certain Deacon's visual style in it, which is which is one of the great pleasures. Now, uh, Sid 
Fisher's and Nancy Spongen became an item uh, back in uh, 1977. He was the bassist with the Sex Pistols. And she was an American groupie who kind of affixed herself to the band uh, when they were on the up uh, in the UK. Less than two years later, uh, she was dead in a hotel room at the Hotel Chelsea, aged just 20 uh, from a single stab wound. And that's where the film begins. To describe Sid and Nancy's relationship as mutually destructive doesn't begin to do justice to this tornado of drug abuse and domestic violence that the two of them just kind of created together. Um, and it's it's all the more astonishing because you have what were, at the time, two very um, untested talents in the lead roles. Uh, Chloe Webb was, a, I think, more or less a complete screen newcomer in the, mm. in, the, in the role of Nancy. She'd had a couple of walk-on parts in TV series, I think. And Gary Oldman, weird as it is to think, as, as, as Sid Vicious, um, he was not really that much better known at the time. Alex Cox has actually said that had, if, if Gary Oldman hadn't done the role, he was planning to offer it to Daniel Day-Lewis, who again at the time was, was not particularly... So to, you know, to conjure the version of the film that would have had Daniel Day-Lewis is fascinating in itself. But, you know... This is a performance, particularly from Gary Oldman, where every cell of his body is basically invested in the physicality of this role. It's hugely physical. There is lots of spitting and sweating and belching and falling around the place in that kind of classic punk uh, way. And it just makes the whole thing wincingly real. There are moments of um, uh, self-harming as well in the film. I mean, this does not shy away at all from the outermost, uh, most difficult, challenging forms of behaviour that these two indulged in. We mentioned Requiem for a Dream earlier. Yes, I mean, right, right, In exactly. that same sort of vein. Yeah, and you can see, goodness, you can see the influence that Sid and Nancy watching it now had on uh, Requiem for a Dream, also enormously on train spotting in the way in which the film uses colour and uses these exuberant, larger-than-life uh, performances and uses pop music incredibly intelligently in a way that Suicide Squad can really only dream of. Um, but look, we've got a clip here, and this is, it's, I mean, it's the classic... Uh, rock and roll romance conundrum where you have the band on one side and the girlfriend on the other side and the guy in the middle his loyalties are, are being tested so this is this is said being approached by John Lydon aka Johnny Rotten uh, with some band based activity and he's really not particularly interested because he has better things he thinks to be doing Sydney wake up dear Sydney wake up I'm sorry I kicked you, Sydney. It was an accident. Leave us alone. Look, I've got two tickets for Rocket at a Rainbow. It'll do you good to go and see him. I, I hear he's cleaned up his act. Don't do any drugs or drink. Well, hardly. And he's all the better for it. I know, Rocket. I bet you do. Rockhead's got the best rocks. Let's go see Rockhead. <laughs> yeah, John, mate. Makes a cup of tea. <laughs> <laughs> it's your fuck. <laughs> Heard Kathy Burke there, didn't you? That That's right. Yeah, Kathy Burke has a has a small role, bigger than a cameo, but a, a role as a groupie. And also, you hear, I think, is it Moonlight Sonata on the piano in the background there? That is the perfect use of ironically juxtaposing music and film with the action on screen. Anyway, Courtney Love is in the film as well. She is. Yeah, she has. A, I think she pops up very close to the start. She auditioned for the part of Nancy actually, yeah. and, and I don't think um, she Art wasn't imitating life. Exactly. Well, well quite. Um, Sid Vicious was an important figure to the Sex Pistols because he was effectively what the band was selling. You have this great scene uh, in, in the movie where Malcolm McLaren, the, their manager, who's played by David Heyman, describes him as a fabulous disaster and he says he embodies the dementia of a nihilistic generation. And what Alex Cox does in this film that's brilliant is that he says, 
this behaviour that you're seeing enacted as part of the punk movement is kind of a collective British neurosis that the country had at that time. And you can see that not, not only in the, the stuff that's going on with the, the punk scene, but there are a lot of scenes set in uh, you know incredibly plush uh, West End London apartments. But those apartments have been spray-painted on the walls. There are dirty mattresses, half-eaten uh, tins of beans all over the place. There are dominatrix dens where you have members of the establishment, you know, TV newsreaders, politicians are kind of in there, in a way working through the same stuff that the punk music uh, movement is doing in their own way as well. Yeah. So it's this idea, and, and Britain is sort of shot as this bombed out wasteland. New York is like, the you know, a kind of a beast made of bricks and mortar that's kind of being eaten from the inside. It's this idea that the entire world is somehow doing what the punks are doing, that this film just gets absolutely right. It is an amazing time capsule, but my goodness, it is as vivid and fresh as if it had been made last week. Did it do well when it was originally released? Do you know, I don't know. I don't know. Um, I'm not sure it possibly did because it was off the back of the success of Repo Man that Alex Cox was able to make this. He was given a budget that was, I think, bigger than he'd, he'd, he'd had to conjure with by, by a factor of two yeah. beforehand. And I don't think he ever went on to, to, to do it. So my kind of suspicion is that it wasn't. Yeah. Um, it's but become a cult classic. Though, it certainly has. And Deacons, yeah. I mean, my goodness, there's a just great Deacons moments all over the place, but there's a terrific bit where they come off a boat uh, where they've been doing this illegal gig in the middle of the Thames yeah. and police kind of deluge onto the quayside and they're arresting everyone left, right and centre. And Sid and Nancy walk through the middle of this scene in this beautiful kind of reverse tracking shot in a bubble and it's like you know these two with each other are insulated from the chaos that's all around them and it is the film in miniature in one shot and you know there's this stuff is staged again and again there's a beautiful shot of them kissing in an alleyway while rubbish kind of cascades down around them in this totally kind of dreamlike uh, surreal moment that may not even be happening in real life and it's just you know these skin prickling moments that just sum up exactly what that punk movement meant yeah. in a way that is just incredibly vital and present. All right, well, it sounds like we should definitely try and take the opportunity to see it on the big screen as well. Uh, right, still to come in the last half hour, what we still got to review? Uh, we've got Sweet Bean, The Carer, Bobby Sands, Sixty Six Days, and Up for Love. Uh, time to choose a TV movie of the week. Some of you have been guessing what Robbie's going to go for. Uh, Keith Fraser says, I've already seen a lot of the good recent films on the list, uh, so I shall vote for the original Django since I enjoyed the Tarantino Unchained version. Uh, Connor Newman says, The Third Man is an obvious choice, but I would also recommend Chef, which was surprisingly entertaining and heartwarming. I really like Chef. It's on... Uh, yeah, it's a very good film. Uh, made me very, very hungry. Personally, I'll be watching Princess Kaguya, which I haven't seen yet. Dan says, while The Third Man is indeed a noir masterpiece, I'd personally go for the hypnotic majesty of the tale of the Princess Kaguya. Is that how you say it? Kaguya. 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 Beautiful, haunting, melancholic gem. Uh, Sam says, definitely The Third Man, a masterpiece of the suspenseful film noir genre with an unsettling plot that completely defies the audience's expectations. And Phil says, Zero Dark Thirty is highly rated by true espionage peeps so must be worth a watch Super 8 is trad Spielberg movie making and ain't bad at all Third Man is legendary especially the Harry Lime music Moby Dick classic look out for Orson Welles in that too not keen on the wall despite being a huge Floyd fan but the music's in there and that is all that matters about the film what are you going for then? Well, look, it's a really strong list. I'm going to go for The Tale of the Princess Kaguya because it's the oh, yeah. final film from uh, Isao Takahata, who was one of the uh, co-founders of Studio Ghibli. Uh, Hayao Miyazaki is by far and away the more, the more famous of the two. His final film, The Wind Rises, came out a few years ago. And yeah. The Tale of the Princess Kaguya arrived 
and was less of an event, which is a shame. I mean, this is just a total masterpiece of animation. It's based on a traditional Japanese folktale in which this bamboo cutter finds this tiny girl in the middle of the forest and uh, he, he and his wife raise her as their own. And as a result of her coming to their house, they discover as well a stash of treasure, which allows them to ascend up the ranks of feudal Japanese society until they become sort of a botan nouveau riche royalty, I suppose. Uh, the film is um, incredibly traditional in its mode of storytelling. The way in which it's been drawn is just extraordinary. I mean, it's unlike any other Ghibli film. It really has more in common with the, you know, the Raymond Briggs style of the, the snowman. Yeah, yeah. Um, done in sort of flashes of watercolour and charcoal, almost as if this the film is being drawn as you're watching it. It has yeah. this incredible vibrancy and immediacy that the more meticulous, uh, beautifully painted Ghibli stuff um, that, that they do elsewhere uh, doesn't. So as a Ghibli film, it's different from the rest of the stuff. And it has slightly faded into the background of the, the, their other more high-profile works. I would say if you have any interest in Ghibli or animation or sort of having your entire worldview changed by these things then you have to see this film at 3.50 Sunday afternoon on film 4 I'm going to go with Saturday afternoon ITV2 and Hot Fuzz <laughs> why not uh, right also mystery sound of the week here it is <coughs> Vivian Bournemouth thought it was a guinea pig uh, Jonathan from Manchester is it Kevin the snipe from Up that's a great mm. guess uh, hi guys, the sound is the call of a water bird that in the UK we call a great northern diver and in North America is called a loon. Reminds me of a canoeing trip I had in Canada a few years ago. Uh, not sure what film it comes from, says Will. Uh, well, well done indeed because that is absolutely spot on. Mystery sound is indeed the haunting call of the common loon. Uh, as in Becky the loon in Finding Dory. Thank you to Selena on Twitter who suggested it. Uh, and also to uh, Will, Ian H, Paul Midcalf, Marie and Sean, Neil Lingwood, Phil Ricky, Jeff Curtis, Nick, the Jacobs and Helen, some of whom pointed out that the loon is also featured in On Golden Pond. Right enough. I mean, maybe we should choose a sound from Finding Dory every single time just to demonstrate this feature's longevity. Could it run, We can pull so many ideas from one film. I think that's a great idea. That's a great idea. Right, uh, let's try and get a couple more reviews in. Yes, what let's do we that. talk about next? Let's talk about Sweet Bean, which is a new film from a Japanese director called Naomi Kawase, whose last uh, film was called Still the Water. It was released here, I think, last year. It's a teenage romance um, out on this far-flung island community in Japan. It involved a lot of freediving and a lot of mysticism and all these kind of things that Naomi Kawase films tend to involve. She makes, she tells stories about people living on the outermost reaches of civilization mm -hmm. and that are very kind of invested in the divinity of nature and the fact that um, the world is ultimately, the, the, the natural world, I should say, is working for our good, even if we might not realise it. Now, this film um, is a lot more straightforward and a lot more focused, and I think it's certainly a lot more accessible than Still the Water. It reminded me a lot of uh, films made by um, a tremendous Japanese filmmaker called Hirokazu Koreeda, who I know Mark is an enormous fan of, and as, as am I. Um, I think his last film to be released in the UK was Our Little Sister. He has another one coming out called After the Storm quite soon, which is just beautiful, sort of family dramas, incredibly profound about the connections that we have between with people that matter in our lives. Yeah. How those connections are strengthened and how they're, they're torn apart 
apart sometimes as well. So this kind of brings in some of that family and society stuff from Corrida while still remaining absolutely at its core, an Omi Kawase film. So it's set uh, in and around a stall um, in, in, in a small town where this guy called Sentaro, who's played by Masatoshi Nagasi, uh, uh, makes dorayaki. Now, dorayaki are... Japanese drop scones, basically. They're yep. kind of small pancakes with a filling of red bean paste. And Sintaro doesn't particularly love the work. He doesn't even have much of a sweet tooth. But he does make a really good pancake. The sweet bean paste... <laughs> Important in life. The sweet bean paste, he just buys in from a wholesaler because he can't be bothered with this incredibly labour-intensive process of stewing the beans overnight and all this nonsense that, that, that goes hand in hand with it. One day, an elderly woman called uh, Tokue ambles past the stall. She's played by a Japanese character actress called Kirin Kiki, who's appeared in a lot of Koreeda films in the past and is kind of, if you're into Koreeda, is just one of these immediately recognisable great character actresses. She asks for a part-time assistant job at the, the Doriaki stand. And uh, Sentaro is reluctant to give one to her because she's quite dotty. She's obviously very old. And he also notices that she seems to be suffering from something like arthritis. So he doesn't think she'll be particularly um, responsible, you know, uh, dependable in the job. So he sort of fobs her off. But she leaves behind a little plastic box of her own homemade uh, sweet bean paste. And of course, when he tries it, it's the most delicious he's ever had. I mean, it's kind of, in a weird way, like this spiritual version of the Keenan and Kel film Good Burger. I don't know if you've ever seen no. that, where they just, anyway, you know, if you've not seen Good Burger, don't seek it out. This is significantly better. Okay. But it's, it's, it's like this kind of discovery of the magic ingredient that is suddenly going to, to, to solve all of your business's problems. So they have this mutually beneficial relationship where um, Sentaro is able to make tastier dorayaki as a result. And uh, Tokue is able to get this sense of purpose in her life that she didn't have before. And over the course of the film, we discover why that is why she has been crowded out to the, the, the fringes of society and why it's so important for her to have a stake back in her work again. Now, this is a film, I mean, it's a foodie film, but it's not like Chef, where you just come out drooling over, you know, constantly <laughs> salivating over kind of cheese yeah. and steak and all these sort of delicious yeah. things. It's actually more than about eating food. It's about preparing food. And, and it's there. not nine and a half weeks either. It's, well, look, let's not go there with, you know, with dorayaki and sweet bean paste, you know, that just the, the images that's conjuring are just not worth dwelling on on a Friday afternoon. But it, in the way in which Tokue shows uh, Sentaro how to prepare these beans, she takes a lot of care over the, um, you know, the, the, the rinsing and the stewing. And it's just shot in this way that is intensely beautiful and poetic, but with such a light touch that it almost feels as if the beauty is being accidentally discovered. You're just kind of tripping over it rather than it looking incredibly staged. And there's this idea of the value of uh, passed down, hand-learned knowledge about how to prepare this paste. Uh, Tokui talks a lot about how nature has, um, you know, the, the sunlight and the, the rain that's washed over these beans. She tells him at one point to listen to the stories these beans tell, which to me sounded slightly like... Back a, in the beanstalk? Profa more like a vis profanosaurus <laughs> thing. You know, it's like very, very polite euphemism for stories the beans tell. You could be used to some kind of gastrointestinal activity. In isolation, it sounds slightly absurd, but in the context of the film, it totally works. And actually, um, Kawase used to work as a documentarian uh, a long time ago. And the film, in its middle passage, does a little bit of documentary work about showing you how these beans are harvested and, and, and grown and prepared. I mean, I just find this totally delightful. But again, you know, like Sentaro, who doesn't have much of a sweet tooth, this is not a sickly or sentimental movie. It is, you know, it has a kind of a poetic heart and a bittersweet heart as it, as it was. You find out more about Tokui's life and the effect that she has on Sentaro. But I really, really enjoyed it. Anyone who's a fan of, obviously, Kawase, but also uh, Koreeda, I would say, contemporary Japanese cinema in general, this is worth seeking out. Did you like Father Like Son? 
that that was a Coriander film. Yeah. And yes, I mean, my goodness, that just knocked that. me flat. Yeah. It's so beautiful. It's from a couple of years ago, isn't it? Yes, that's what right. What a wonderful, that's wonderful right. film, yeah. Oh, great. Okay. All right. I'm, I'm, I'm sold on that one for sure. Definitely sold on that one. Uh, what else we got? Uh, let's talk about Bobby Sands' 66 Days, which is a new documentary from a Belfast-born filmmaker called Brendan J. Byrne. Uh, it's part of the BBC's Storyville uh, feature documentary Strand. And it's about, of course, the IRA hunger striker Bobby Sands, who died on uh, May the 5th, 1981, in Mays Prison, County Down, at the age of 27 after, as the title suggests, uh, 66 days of self-imposed starvation. He was the first, I think, of 10 prisoners to, to, to die there. He was striking because IRA prisoners at the time were being held as criminals and not political prisoners. And the idea was that through this process, they were going to draw the world's attention towards their plight and their their cause. And that they are, it would be recognised as not criminal, but political. And in, in doing so, of course, he became a, a, mar- a martyr to the Irish Republican cause, really. Um, the kind of strike it was, very high profile, lots of media coverage. I think anyone aged 40 or over will remember it having played out live on the news in real time at the time. And the way in which that day-by-day drip feed of information began to almost mythologise who Bobby Sands was and what he stood for in a way that was incredibly helpful to the cause that he was defending, more so uh, than than the kind of violent terrorism that was also being carried out by the IRA. Now, there's a clip from the film here that's uh, Fintan O'Toole talking about how this uh, action helped the IRA, IRA to win over hearts and minds that is absolutely indicative of, of, of the tone of the film and just what it gets right. Bobby Sands was deeply aware of the fact that he wasn't just this isolated individual at a particular point in time. He very consciously saw himself in a tradition, which was the 1916 tradition. The only way we can win is emotional and metaphorical, and we can win by sacrifice. He knows enough about the culture that he comes from to know that this is going to hit certain nerve endings within the collective psyche. It's going to connect with Irish republicanism and its martyr traditions, but it's also going to connect with Catholicism. It's going to connect with the idea of, of Christ. So look, it's taking a long view. It's not obsessed with biographical detail. It's yeah. interesting that of all the talking heads that appear, there aren't, I don't think, anyone from Sands's family Actually, I believe they may have declined to take part in the film. I'm not sure if this is something that they particularly wanted to do. But it's very much about the kind of societal, cultural function of the of the hunger strike and what it kind of achieved. Um, I think the selection of talking heads, incredibly well chosen. You have historians putting it in context. You have people like Fintan O'Toole explaining that, you know, enduring rather than inflicting hardship can be a better way to win people over to a cause. And when a state declines to create martyrs on your behalf, sometimes individuals have to do it to themselves in order to in order to have that part of you know your your campaign um, fulfilled. It's also incredibly good on the, the, the value of contemporary news footage. The, the, the news footage in this is is so evocative and so well chosen. And, you know, any film about Bobby Sands now is going to remind you of Steve McQueen's Hunger, where you yeah. have Michael Fassbender playing him, and just, you know, kind of iconic portrayal of him. Um, but also, for me, this really brought back memories of 71, the Jan de Monge film. I um, love that film. Yeah, right, exactly. But with it Jack was, O'Connor. Yes, with Jack O'Connell as this British soldier who gets stuck behind uh, enemy lines in Northern Ireland in, in, in Belfast at the time. Now... That was staged like a John Carpenter style, you know, high tension action movie. And looking back at this footage, you realise, and it's stuff like people coming out into the streets and drumming their dustbin lids on the floor, which, my goodness, is just one of the most haunting sequences in 71. You can see 
that's what happened. And, you know, for people who are not 40 or, or older and can't remember this stuff first time round, yeah. it is such a valuable expression of what Britain looked like at that time, what Northern Ireland looked like at that time, how Belfast kind of grew from these kind of simmering under the surface tensions into this explosion of warfare. I um, With documentaries and music and the way it's used as well, it's kind of, it's an interesting kind of discussion, I think, in terms of how it's done. I think it's done brilliantly with this as well. It's kind of almost like a Tron soundtrack. Yes, uh, right. And kind of almost, or a Nicholas Wind and Refn movie. Do you know what I mean? It's, it's It seems like it's a very important aspect to the filmmakers, the kind of, the sound and, and the, the kind of quality of it and how it ties in with that time period but also how it's kind of it's a relevant and still um, interesting discussion to be having as well yes absolutely Um, and that's the thing because it focuses on the wider cultural context it's relevant to life now yeah in a way that perhaps a straight biographical documentary wouldn't have been yeah even though you know he's the subject matter of the title it's not necessarily subject matter of the film although his actions kind of form the backbone of it in a way yes right i mean the film is built around the 66 days of his hunger strike but in between those days, certainly in the first half of the film, you get these digressions back, you know, to Sansa's own childhood or back way back into Irish history to, to understand the importance of institutionalised fasting, what that signified and why this is kind of a cultural um, uh, a, a part of Irish culture that is not, I mean, to someone like me, would not understand yeah. you know, without having been told that. Well, I think we've got time for another review, actually, if that's all right. Yes, let's fit it in. Let's quickly do The Carer, which is a comic drama that was shot in the UK with a largely British cast. Uh, it was directed by uh, a Hungarian filmmaker called Janos Edlenyi um, and made also by a largely Hungarian crew. So you have this, I mean, it's, in a way, it's this piece of cinema du Brexit, which shows people kind of cooperating uh, over national boundaries. Brian Cox stars in it as Sir Michael Gifford, who's this venerable Shakespearean actor who's battling late stage Parkinson's, um, the condition that's made him incredibly short tempered and exasperated easily. Not that he ever seemed to be like sunbeams and puppies to begin with. <laughs> um, his daughter, played by Amelia Fox, uh, wants to hire the, the latest in a long string of carers to look after him at home. Uh, so um, she hires this Hungarian girl called Dorotcha, who's played by... Um, uh, she, she's in, in the film, she's a, an aspiring actress. She's played by um, uh, an actress who I think has got um, done a lot of stage work in the past, Coco Konig, but has not um, appeared in films before. And basically, this young woman's feisty Central European moxie is exactly the tonic uh, that Sir Michael needed. And here we can hear a, a moment where they first meet and she's hauling him out of a rosebush. When you've quite finished gawping... Would you please be so kind as to get me out of the separating rosebush? I feel like Buster Feetin on a bad day. Oh, oh, oh. Oh, who are you? I'm Dorotia. I didn't ask your name, I asked who you are. What are you doing in my garden? I'm your new career. You're my new career? Yes. Now, that's a depressing thought. What did you say your name was again? Dodoin, Torino, Burrito. Dorotcha. You're a scrawny little thing. I pulled you up, didn't I? Not very pretty. Well, Actually, you look like a girl I used to fancy in nursery, which you look as if you're still attending. And don't say I look like someone. I'm too famous to look like anyone else. Other people look like me, if they're lucky. So they, I mean, you can see what's being set up here. She is going to carry the torch of a passion and talent for acting forward to the next generation. And basically these two sort of um, club around together, quoting Shakespeare 
at incredibly frustrating length at one another, uh, just in, in order to kind of prove that they're both great actors. I mean, look, this is kind of in the tradition of a French film called, Unt it was well, it was released over here as Untouchable uh, with Francois Clouzet and Omar Sy a few years ago. Uh, and I think in France it was Les Intouchables. Um, about, again, you have a rich person being pushed around by an immigrant in the, in the wheelchair and they, they, they start out not getting on and then they start getting on. This film does not develop that idea anywhere at all beyond the most rudimentary basics of it. I mean, it was co-written by Gilbert Adair, this novelist um, who, who wrote The Dreamers for Bertolucci, um, and, you know, a wonderful, wonderful writer and a great critic. He must have written this on, I mean, the offest of off days. It is a totally <laughs> bare-bones exercise, and um, I have to say, uh, not particularly interesting, not particularly engaging, and, um, you know, something to just move on from for all concerned. OK, well, let's move on, and I'm afraid we're uh, coming towards the end of the show. Uh, it's been a Something Else production for BBC Radio 5 Live. Robbie, your movie of the week. Please. Well, I mean, it would be Sid and Nancy, but if it's not Sid and Nancy, it would be... Suicide Squad. Sweet Let bean. me guess. Sweet Suicide bean. Squad. It was Sweet For bean. you? Come on. Sweet beans? Sweet beans. Sweet beans all the way, baby. <laughs> right, that was this week's show. Heated. I like the Passion. heatedness. And what was the last thing that we got heated about on the show? It was a Simon Pegg film, wasn't it? That was, that was less of heated. That was just more like an incredibly bitter falling out. <laughs> Hector in the Search for Happiness was, was its yeah, ironic title. Non-happy. And we got flip-flops delivered, if I remember rightly, whilst we were having a rant about it. Can you um, believe... People guilt tripping me with flip flops. <laughs> flip flops. What did they, they guilt trip they, you with? You know, suicide how low can these? Nothing. They Nothing. just wrote, they wrote me off as a Nothing. bad, a bad case. Uh, right. Listen, I wanted to get a couple of extra um, correspondence that came in uh, about finding Dory that we didn't get time to go through. If that's all right, this is uh, uh, from Jason Siegel. Seagal. Maybe it's the actual Jason Seagal. I doubt it is, but he said substitutes. Finding Nemo was the first film I ever saw at the cinema when I was five. It was fitting then that on Saturday, my 18th birthday, I went with my family to see the long-awaited sequel. I just love the fact that he's gone with his family to see this on his 18th birthday. Finding Dory was a special piece of work from the geniuses at Pixar. It comfortably passed the six laugh test and even when I was not laughing, I smiled the whole way through. It's a very different film from the first in this series with the finding in the title being less physical than Nemo and more character based it's not as good as Finding Nemo but then what is a truly brilliant film Jason uh, thank you very much indeed for this this is from uh, Cat Level 2 Gymnastics and a couple of science degrees my three year old nine month old and I I love the fact she's taken her nine month old to the cinema I've just returned from a showing of Finding Dory something we'd been anticipating for a while uh, we've watched Finding Nemo many times, so much so that when the podcast was playing in the car on the way to the cinema, my eldest immediately said, It's Dory! Upon hearing the mystery whale noise. See? There in are. there. Uh, eldest daughter's final review mainly consisted of it had Dory and Nemo in it. But I'm certain she really enjoyed the film. She watched it completely wrapped and was quite literally on the edge of her seat in the final sequences. Personally, I thought uh, fi the final action sequence were a tad overcooked with perhaps... One too many, oh no, it's all gone horribly wrong again moment. And a few sequences from Hank's perspective where I almost lost track of what was happening. This might be sleep deprivation on my part. But I love the message subtly woven through the film in particular. The appreciated Marlon's story uh, arc early on. He's snappy and impatient with Dory but slowly comes to appreciate her differences. I'm sure this will be another movie we'll be adding to our home collection and I'll continue to find clever bits that I missed first time around. If you have an emo fan at home, I'm certain this will not disappoint. Great. Thank you very much indeed for that and thank you to everybody as well, as well for all your correspondence. It's time for DVD of the Week.
I almost forgot had theme tune. How could you forget this? Could music? I? How this could instrument. I? I don't know what is it a xylophone or something that's doing the melody. Hold here? on. It's just a keyboard. You think? With one of those things. I can tell you it's not a second bassoon. Right. But beyond that. But you have to promise now that you are going to bring in your bassoon so we can create another feature if we're asked back that involves a bassoon. That's Guess the theme tune from Robbie's second bassoon. There we go, it's snappy. <laughs> snappy, no, I If like it's it. not either the engine, we may struggle. Hey, parents and carers of school-aged children, are your little ones driving you absolutely back-dropping crazy already? Only a week or so into the summer torture marathon, a.k.a. holidays. Stick them in front of some of these buttes and reach for the gin. Maybe not Southbound Movie or Tale of Tales or Female Prisoner Scorpion, but they might be giants. There's a you and Eddie the Eagles a PG, so they'll do. What is your choice and what will Robbie pick? Well, Andy Ravenscroft, Southbound and Solaris are intriguing possibilities because the former is an uh, anthology film in a creepy show mode and the latter is a classic of science fiction based on a deep and fascinating novel by Stanislaw Lem. Uh, but in a week of good choices, I'm going to plump for a tale of tales. It's this sort of fantastical and rich visual feast that he often champions and the DVD release will get it in front of a wider audience. Connor also, Tale of Tales was bizarre but entertaining, but Sing Street, yes, is one of the best films I've seen this year, which had a criminally limited run at cinemas, so I think Robbie should go for that. Ben says Robbie will quite rightly choose the severely underappreciated Midnight Special, a phenomenal film, in my eyes, not Ben's, my favourite film of the year so far. But other than that, my own personal suggestion this week has to be Solaris and the Female Prisoner Scorpion Collection. Uh, but Deep Anne was also pretty good too. And Alex, I really hope it's Female Prisoner. So I can watch it on a double bill with love expo- exposure and watch my mind collapse in on itself. But I'd be happy if Robbie goes for Solaris, as although it's my least favourite, uh, Tarkovsky it still has a lot going for it. What's it going to be? Deep Anne, Eddie the Eagle, Female Prisoner Scorpion, The Complete Collection, Midnight Special, Sing Street, Solaris, Southbound, Tale of Tales, The Hard Stop, They Might Be Giants, Where to Invade Next. I mean, it is... A smashing week, it's and great. I think you know Sing Street, Solaris, even Female Prisoners. Got, I mean, they're, you know, they're all worth seeking out. I want to quickly say, Tale of Tales. If you missed that in the cinema, see that it's Matteo Garoni, this Italian filmmaker, working uh, in English language, and does this triptych of uh, Neapolitan fairy tales that were written down uh, by this uh, the, uh, Renaissance um, Neapolitan writer Giambattista Basile. And it's got this bizarre all-star cast where you have Salma Hayek, John C. Riley all playing different roles in these uh, these very, very strange, very beautifully, very sensually told fairy tales. So, Tale of Tales is great, but, but my choice is, of course, special, Midnight Special. Special, yes! Special, which was yes! going to be Jeff Nichols' big breakout hit until it really catastrophically wasn't. And uh, this film, for whatever reason, did not connect with people at Why? the box office. Why? It is what summer blockbusters used to look like 30 years ago. And it's what we've been missing this summer, is a film that is made with this much intelligence and, and this heart. much emotional rigour and heart. Exactly as you say, you've got Michael Shannon and Kirsten Dunst as the parents of this child called Alton who has some strange preternatural abilities don't want to say much yeah, more than that but enough. you get to see them in action and I think particularly in the wake of Stranger Things the Netflix series that's doing so well now yeah. uh, which is riffing on Stephen King stories uh, four episodes know, the, into that by the way the Amblin movie Steven Spielberg did you know it's 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 looking back at all those um, staples of late 70s early 80s childhoods in a way that's quite I mean it's it's beautifully done but to me it's pastiche 
Midnight Special is the real deal. Yeah. And if you missed it at the cinemas, what you know what you've got in store, just ah. Adam Driver and and Joel um, Joel Edgerton as well. Yeah. As well, I mean the cast's phenomenal. I remember speaking to Kirsten Dunst about this film. I was kind of completely blown away. And its director he did Mud, isn't it? Yes, that's right, Jeff Nichols. He's going on to make a film called. In fact, he's made it already. Is he? It's coming out for award season. (gasps) This year called Loving, which is about oh. the uh, this kind of case study interracial um, marriage with Joel in the Joel states Edgerton with Joel Edgerton yeah. and Ruth Negga as, okay. as as the couple in question, and I mean, I I saw that and thought, okay, so this is the next part of Jeff Nichols' tra- uh, strategy. He's wanted to make his blockbuster, and that hasn't worked, so he's wanting to make his awards movie. Now that's not what this is at all. It's a film that could be you know, conceivably do incredibly well at the Oscars, but it is not awards bait in any sense. Uh, I mean, really, to me, Nichols is one of the most exciting young American filmmakers working today because he has such a great knowledge of the mechanics of cinema, whether he's telling this kind of story or a historical drama or something like Mud, which is this, um, you know, sort of um, uh, American folktale-y sort of thing that he Mm. does, or Take Shelter, which was uh, really, I think, the the, the kind of companion piece uh, for Midnight Special. You know, he just knows how to build these films and how to construct characters and how to write beautiful dialogue. And, you know, the tricks he has under his control, he he just knows it all. And and, and what he, he actually comes up with, even though it's not necessarily incredibly flashy or incredibly... When it needs to be, it is. The... Well, when this, when this film is, yeah. it needs to be, there's a sequence at the petrol station, which is just extraordinary. Yeah. And some stuff to do with uh, Alton's eyes, yeah. what they are capable of as well. But it's... Yeah. it's what he does is he doesn't do it extravagantly. He builds these beautiful images that stay with you. Yeah. And, um, you know, whether he's filming this kid's incredibly odd powers at work or he's just filming the kid being handed over from his father to his mother in the middle of this yeah. kind of swampy grassland area, it's all beautifully staged and incredibly well acted and just stays with you. It's one of the best things I've seen this year. Yeah, I walked around for days with swimming goggles on afterwards, just in kind of old to it. I loved it. Also, See Sing Street, it's a great film and it's got a great soundtrack, which you can get on vinyl as well. Great. Um, brilliant. All right, listen, thank you for having us. Hopefully you enjoyed our Mick Wittertainment over the last two weeks uh, and we hope to see you again. As we said, um, the uh, the other two are off for a couple of weeks while the Olympics is on their back on the 26th of August, I think it is. So thanks for listening. On digital and online. This is BBC Radio 5 Live. bbc.co.uk slash 5 Live.